This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast in association with Renewable UK. This week I'm joined by our Africa editor Ed Reid and Asia editor Damon Evans. Last week, of course, our news agenda was dominated by the invasion of Ukraine. And this week will be no different. Uh, Damon, we've had a whole range of companies announcing their exit from Russia in light of the atrocities being committed, but crucially, not everyone's leaving. Yep, Alistair, correct. Yeah, what what a couple of weeks it's been so far and, and uh, in the energy markets and the Japanese companies are in the spotlight too for their, their investments in, uh, in Russia. Uh, there's been an increase in speculation that they might follow Shell and ExxonMobil uh, to walk out of projects on Sakhalin Island and other interests in Russia. However, it does. It looks like the Japanese are going to take a more pragmatic approach. Um, the companies, uh, two of the big Japanese trading companies, Mitsui and Mitsubishi, in particular, have a, a partnership with Shell and Gazprom at the Sakhalin LNG export plant, which Shell has announced it will, it will, it will walk away from or exit. Uh, I don't think we know how Shell planned to do that as yet, but but they've said they're going. Uh, the Japanese partners are a bit more coy. They're saying there's no no decision as yet and they're looking for the government to to take a decision really so they, they they're really leaving this it's not a corporate decision in in the japanese corporate world's eyes and and the government is kind of um uh, i would say reluctant to give guidance at this point they are you know japan's primary energy 95 percent of it is imported their energy and security is extremely important for them and the Japanese are also playing the Chinese card, saying, well, look, if we leave, the Chinese are just going to come in and fill the void. Uh, that would be the most likely scenario. So it doesn't really punish Russia. Um, and, the, 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 you know, the way forward really is to, is, it looks like they will probably be staying unless um, the G7 group, which Japan is a member of, uh, decide to, the governments of the G7 decide to, you know, order order their companies to to leave Russia, then Japan will be kind of forced to to reconsider its position. Mm-hmm. Um, so so very different to the the Western companies, which we've seen have all uh, you know it seems to have taken independent decisions to leave rather than being openly or publicly pressured by the you know Washington or London. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, we talked last week uh, with with Ed as well uh, about how the, there's this ESG concerns and this the the social side of that that has seen some of the Western uh, companies decide to to leave. But I suppose from a Japanese perspective, uh, as you rightly say, Damon, this the supply issue. Um, you know, it wouldn't be very good um, from from any kind of ESG angle for them if they were to cut off their 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 supply coming from from imports from from Russia. So, um, yeah, interesting to see Total uh, are are as I think we covered last week the only company or the only major uh, kind of standing alone in terms of saying we're going to keep our um, stake in Russia. Um, I note that at Sarah Week uh, this week, uh, the chief executive Patrick Puyan kind of said, well. It would be a bit inconsistent of us to exit our Russian assets when Europe remains pretty much reliant on uh, Russian gas. And you know what? That's I can see that argument um, for 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 damn sure. Um, so it's it's such a tough um, call, isn't it? I mean, in terms of the knock-on impacts that this could have. Um, in terms of 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 the China card, as as you say. Uh, Damon, I mean, I mean, as you say, it's kind of we don't really know what the exit strategy is going to be for all of these 
companies. I mean, have you seen much, by the way, of, of interest, I suppose, from, from China in terms of, oh, there's a lot, a lot of assets going up for sale? I mean, is it realistic to say we're going to see a wave of Chinese buyers coming in? Because I have seen that argument pop up quite a lot in, in recent days. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's certainly that's the logical, the logical, you know, the logical route. Um, China has been mooted. You're quite right as the logical buyer. Um, I don't think they're going to be rushing in. I think they'll be staying away initially. No pun intended. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, they, you know, eventually we're, Who's going to fill the void? It will be the Chinese and potentially the the Indian companies. Both China and India have, um, you know, they've been reluctant to criticise the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They 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 are reluctant to impose sanctions. China is very much in, you know, believes that Russia and the West and Ukraine should all sit down and negotiate a peaceful solution, but they don't think sanctions are the way forward. Um, other Asian countries believe that too, particularly Indonesia. Um, I think the Indian companies, they, they will also be there. They have a big presence in Sakhalin 1 and they've been wanting to increase their, their, their presence in Russia. So you could perhaps see you know, Indian firms as well, but definitely the Chinese are the number one choice. I mean, China and India, they're, I think they're, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, they're two of, you know, they're among the biggest energy importers in the world. They hold, you know, probably most of the world population together. They need raw materials. Um, They don't have the privilege to say, hey, yeah, we're just going to go and do something else. You know, they they need to secure supplies. And I think if there's a, a bargain to be had, then they'll do that. I, I, I don't quite understand the exit strategies of, you know, companies like ExxonMobil and Shell. Mm. Um, and interesting, you know, what are they going to do? Are they just going to walk away and give the give the stake to the Russians, Gazprom, Rosneft, etc.? That You know, I don't see how that hurts Russia. And interesting parallel we've got going on in Myanmar recently with Total Energies, interestingly, saying we're out, we're just walking away. We're going to give the project to the remaining partners, which includes um, military junta connected companies in Myanmar. So, you know, I don't, I, yeah, it's, it's a strange one. I mean, in Myanmar, Chevron, who is a partner with Total Energies, have decided that they will sell their stake. They're not just going to walk away. So they're going to have like a managed kind of transition. Mm. So it'd be interesting to see whether we see that in Russia as well, like the Western majors yeah. um, say, look, we're only going to sell to someone and, you know, the, so it doesn't benefit the Russians, but maybe you guys know more about this than me. Well, I mean, I, I just wanted to, can I just jump in at that point? I mean, I, I just think, you know, the, the, the Chinese angle, I suspect, has been uh, overemphasized for me. I think, I mean, I think Russia is already quite uh, wary of the amount of influence that, that China will have on, on Russian energy policy. Obviously, with those, those, those big pipelines, right? Paris, Siberia, the, uh, the ASBO pipeline. Those are there's a big uh, locked in volumes from Russia to China, and China is from we we can see from those negotiations is not just handing out money kind of willy nilly, right? It's driving a hard bargain, and I suspect that uh, seeing Russia as a distressed seller, or you know, wh- however those assets get kind of redistributed, 
those assets would uh, there aren't going to be that many people who would buy them, mm. and I suspect that uh, China would uh, if if China probably would be interested, but I don't think that they would uh, give Russia anywhere near the the sort of value that they would like to get. So I think there is a kind of a, a kind of a question about how distressed. The, the that those kind of assets are can Russia hang on to them for a bit of time until until maybe that some of the some of the the din has, has has receded. I think I think one of the kind of the interesting things that kind of popped up to me is that kind of question about so the the degree of sort of operational expertise that that Russia may be losing. Right. I mean, I think looking at the history of sort of Sakhalin two, right? Uh, when you know, obviously built largely by Shell. I mean, I remember long discussions with guys from Shell, you know, back in the day about about the amount of work that they were doing and and, and obviously the amount of technical expertise. And obviously Gazprom has technical expertise, but running an LNG plant is is something a bit different. And I'm 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 interested to know to what extent uh you know do, do the do the Japanese partners have that expertise? Can Gazprom just step in? To, I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 I suppose this is probably the place where we're going to have answers. But I think it's going to be a really interesting question around how that sort of transfer of of, of knowledge and technology works. Well, I think very quickly, maybe to just address maybe one or one or two of those points. I mean, we have. Uh, and Damien, you were talking about exit strategies as well. I mean, we have, we have Reuters in the Wall Street Journal reporting today that Russia's government has essentially approved measures to pave the way for nationalization of property of these Western companies that are exiting. So we have to assume that's Apple to Ford to BP to Exxon. And the measures kind of are designed to prevent bankruptcies, preserve jobs um, that uh, for, from these companies that are 25% owned by foreign entities of so-called unfriendly governments. So apparently, maybe getting a little bit into what you were discussing there, Ed, the measures include a provision that will enable members of a board of directors at designated organizations or Russia's federal tax service to appoint external management to keep operations running. So I think that might come into, do they have the commercial and technical expertise to to run these kind of corporation corp, corporations and then there's there's a little bit here you know owners will be able to object to the appointment of external management within 5 days if they agree to resume operations or sell their interest alternatively a court will appoint external management and the shares of the organization will be put up for sale so um it looks like sooner or later uh, maybe the exit strategies will become up will 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 come up um in a bit of detail, but it sounds like um, people are who have announced they're going to be leaving are going to get um, maybe a bit more pushed in the coming uh, day, uh, weeks ahead, I think. Uh, Damon, I interrupted you. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say that, you know, I, I personally, I think that the Russians have more expertise than, than they're being given credit for in, in the oil and gas sector in the, in the Western press at the moment. Um, Gazprom or Russia effectively kind of shifted and shafted Shell at Sackland too yeah. and kind of pushed them out and took it over if, if we recall I don't know when in the past decade but they did do that and they've been operating that for um, you know I don't know how many years but quite a few years so they've got that experience uh, the Japanese built Sackland too they were the the main contractor for it I, I was actually fortunate to be on site for a year and have the, the privilege of seeing that thing go up um, so I and I was surprised by the expertise in Russia. You know, they they've got experience all over from Siberia and stuff. So yeah, I you know I think um, yeah I don't think the Russians will be quaking in their boots. But that, that's my personal opinion, not Energy Voice opinion. <laughs> certain Energy Voice <laughs> spokesperson. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
Okay, well, uh, we'll park that there. Thanks, Damon. Uh, and next up, look at the EU's plans to shift away from Russian gas and what role that North Africa might have to play within that. Energy is going through seismic change. This will be driven by people, attracting new talent and reskilling the current workforce. Our Net Zero Workforce event, held online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on the 29th of March 2022, will explore the opportunities and challenges in the great energy skills transition and connect leading corporates, educators and innovators with the workforce of tomorrow. Free registration for virtual attendance and tickets for the physical event will be available soon, but right now we're looking for sponsors to join the event panels to debate this critical issue. Our event partners have the opportunity to project their leadership on energy skills transfer, help set the just transition agenda with the wider industry and legislators, and speak directly with talent that can shape their future. For details of sponsorship opportunities, email ryan.stevenson at energyvoice.com. Details are in the episode notes. Well, Ed, they say uh, a week's a long time in politics, and we've had huge investment plans announced in Germany to get off Russian supply, and the, the EU has unveiled a, a wider plan to, to wane itself off. Indeed. Uh, so so the uh, obviously energy security being uh, kind of at the top of, uh, of everybody's uh, list at the moment, uh, that we're, we're kind of clearly seeing uh, both both uh, in Europe and, and, and obviously across the pond in the US where there are kind of fresh concerns about oil prices. But so, so the European Commission came out with a plan this week, uh, which it said uh, would remove the need for Russian supplies by 2030. Uh, and, it, and it aims to make two thirds of this uh, headway uh, this year. Um, so that's um, 155 BCM, it says, uh, of gas that it imported from Russia in 2021. So uh, a fairly significant amount of, of, of headway that it's, it's aiming to, to, to reach. Obviously, a lot of that um, diversion is going to come from, at least in the short term, from, from LNG. Um, there are sort of longer term plans around hydrogen around energy efficiency mm. the, the the sort of the the energy tr- transition drums that we've sort of been beating for the last kind of a uh, couple of a uh, couple of years but it's it's been really striking i think that this sort of real you know suddenly uh the the emergence or the re-emergence even of, of lng as a sort of a, a fuel of the future which obviously will be will be music to uh to, to, to many companies is uh you know Shell, for instance, has been has been predicting uh, you know shortfalls in investment in in LNG for some time, and and now it really seems to be kind of kicking off with a vengeance. Um, so they said uh, that the, the EU imported 10 BCM of LNG in January, which it said was a record, and predicting that that, that February would be even higher. And it's clear that that you know this is going to play a really major part in this in in, in tackling these problems. Um, I think you know really kind of leading the way is is Germany, which kind of came out and said um, you know before obviously it was you know really talking up sort of the move to renewable energy to to green energy, you know cutting nuclear, cutting coal, uh, all those sorts of things. Suddenly you know kind of coal is back, nuclear maybe back, and uh, LNG suddenly very much in favour. So the, the the Russian no sorry the the, the German uh, state through KFW is has, has stepped in to support uh, two uh, one of those uh, LNG terminal plans and there's there there are two on the on the on the cards. So this is obviously a, 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 an incredible change, uh, you know, as you say within 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 a week or so. 
And obviously looking to kind of play into this newfound energy security nexus is is North Africa, mm. which is which has long been a sort of a, a, a source of a sort of tipped as a sort of an alternative supplies for the for the European bloc. And obviously now there's a real sense that their time has come. So, you know, there's questions around Algeria. To what extent can Algeria increase capacity? But I think, you know, a lot of the discussion is really focused on the East Med. So uh, there, there are a couple of really sub- significant finds of, uh, of, of, of Israel, which are producing into the local market. Uh, Egypt's got uh, some, some really big fields as well. Uh, Zor is, is, is a really big one. And those are currently going largely into sort of local product, local consumption. So Israel, Egypt, Jordan, there's talks about uh, gas supplies into Lebanon. Um, and in the short term, there's, there's, there, there, there are supplies coming out through LNG plants in Egypt. There are two LNG plants in, in Egypt. So that's clearly a sort of an, an additional source of supply. But in the long term, there's been this uh, long discussed uh, idea of a of a pipeline running from the East Med into into Europe, hmm. which um, it's one of those things that you know when these big projects get talked about, it just looks incredibly foolhardy. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's you know something like sort of seven or eight billion euros of investment. Uh, I think possibly would be laid in the deepest uh, part of the uh, of the of the Mediterranean, so incredibly challenging technically. There are questions around territorial claims: Turkey, Greece, Egypt, Libya. That no one can quite agree on where the where the maritime borders are drawn. But I think I think it's a it's a it's a real kind of a testament to the fact that. You know, suddenly there's this drive for alternatives to Russian supply that, you know, once again, we're sort of talking about uh, piped East Mediterranean gas. I mean, personally, I'm still sceptical that it'll ever happen. But clearly, you know, there's uh, significant capacity to, to, to ramp up uh, LNG exports, mm. both through, uh, through, through Egypt's onshore plants and... You know, floating LNG. But although, you know, Damon, t- tell me about floating LNG. Does, does it always work out? <laughs> well, as we know, in uh, Shell's uh, catastrophe or disaster off Australia, it doesn't work out for Shell, but it does work out for Petronas <laughs> in Malaysia. Petronas have a couple of very successful floaters. And, yeah. I mean, what came to my mind when you were talking there about East Med pipelines is, again, you're going back into reliance on, you know, geopolitically, you know, you have geopolitics again in the mix. And, I would I would have thought LNG would be a better bet that you you know cause it's a lot more flexible and um, for Europe anyway and uh, maybe they could follow the other other energy demand centers like China and the Japanese and go and invest in some LNG production plants overseas and and help improve the market over the next few years but yeah i mean it, that it, might be too sensible well yeah yeah i mean i think it was, it was really striking so so shell does a does a sort of a yearly lng presentation which i think was uh, was was last month so it was really just kind of before everything kicked off but they were saying there was this really interesting divide between china who you know have been over the last year taking sort of long-term lng contracts you know it's just kind of going, going around the world and signing up you know sort of 10 15 20 year supply contracts and these contracts have really kind of fallen out of favor right in the last sort of few years where everyone was talking about this sort of LNG surplus. LNG was cheap as chips, couldn't give it away, that sort of problem. People were like, why do we need a long-term uh, LNG contract? This this stuff will never run short. Suddenly, obviously, that's not entirely worked out. So China, with you know, with that long-term view, looks like it's going to be, you know, probably probably well supplied, although obviously, you know, Chinese demand is going to grow 
far beyond the EU's. But the EU is did not take that step. The idea about LNG kind of, you know, kind of really kind of falling out of favor given environmental concerns. And uh, suddenly there is there is going to be a real shortage. There is just not that much spare LNG around. I think I think another thing that, you know, another little sort of uh, fact kind of crossed my radar that today that talking about uh, French companies looking at long-term LNG supplies from the US. And, you know, I mean, if you, if you cast your mind back maybe three or four years, the French government stepped in to ban French companies from taking LNG contracts from the US because of their concerns about shale. <laughs> they were, you know, concerned about the sort of the methane emissions and the whatevers. And now it's those chickens have really come home to roost, right? Sign that deal, you know, last year, you would be, you know, probably quite well placed. Sign it this year, everyone wants LNG. It's a total seller's dream. It, it is. Um, one thing I'll, I'll maybe add to that is, and, and we'll get on to Boris Johnson in just a couple of minutes' time, but he has he has been doing the rounds, um, <laughs> uh, speaking to German newspapers, to Italian newspapers um, this past week. And one of the many things he's been discussing is something called the detail on how this works has has not been disclosed as you might expect, but he's he's been mooting this idea of a climate pass for gas industry in Western nations such as the US, such as Canada, to help uh, the EU uh, wane itself off of of Russian supply. Um, and I, I guess that comes into exactly what you were talking about there a little bit, Ed, is the the environmental concerns maybe being pushed back a little bit in 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 light of the immediate crisis. Now, I'm sure many people would rightly argue that climate change is the crisis globally that we need to be focusing on. But, you know, uh, I guess something's got to give. Um, so whether or not, I mean, whether or not something like that is tangible um, in order to ramp up production or ramp up exports from the likes of the US uh, remains to be seen. But uh, interesting idea. And it is clear that, the, that Europe is very rapidly needed, going to have to get itself off of a, a supplier that is... Uh, well, there's no other way of saying it, threatening them, I suppose. So, um, yeah, we'll watch that one with interest. So uh, so thanks, Ed. And uh, next up, we'll take a look at how the situation is impacting the UK. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, so as I say, uh, this week we saw, uh, well, a flurry of announcements, I suppose, from the UK government, uh, including a ban on Russian oil, which, uh, like gas, is only a modest portion of our supply. Roughly 8% of oil for the UK comes from Russia, 4% of gas, not much. So it's not so much a supply issue that we have here, but very much a price issue. And uh, as I say, Boris Johnson's been doing the rounds quite literally with the international press and uh, a Downing Street press conference this week. And I'll maybe start with the latter. Um, he and the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, have said that a new energy supply strategy will be published soon. And that will include support for North Sea oil and gas industry. 
the FT quoted him as saying, one of the things we're looking at is the possibility of using more of our own hydrocarbons. We need to increase our self-reliance. And the Times reported, meanwhile, that the, the plan would mean opening up the first new round of exploration licenses since 2019. And that's that's all well and good. I wasn't at this Downing Street press conference. Uh, obviously, these quotes were reported and the comments were, were obviously very welcome to, to our readers who uh, hang on uh, the North Sea oil and gas industry quite firmly. And, and to be clear, we are expecting fresh investment here in the coming two, three years. Absolutely. You're talking hundreds more jobs, not thousands. Having our own domestic supply chain is important. And as we've just discussed with Europe, it's very easy to take for granted having that domestic supply and not being in a, a security issue um, like some others will be. As has kind of always been pointed out, um, we in the UK cannot decouple ourselves from global oil and gas prices. We can't. And no matter how much you might want to ramp up domestic production in the UK or offer new drilling licenses, that's not realistically going to affect the price. It's a supply chain issue, a supply issue we have here, not a price issue. And we had um, Warwick University, Oxford Uni, Greenpeace's chief scientist and others on a Bayes Committee panel this week following um, Boris's press conference. And yeah, the, the idea of new licenses was quite effectively, I thought, argued against or at least presented as, as not quite the right option. So Dr. Uh, Doug Parr of Greenpeace cited some OGA figures from 2019 that showed that historically, from discovery to first oil, new finds have taken an average of nearly 30 years to get going. The OGA tell us that in recent times, it's kind of reduced from you know to five years from discovery to final investment decision. It doesn't really matter. Five years or 30 years, that isn't going to solve a price crisis that's going to come in the next kind of six months, a very, very tough winter ahead. And you know, yes, you can say we're going to increase uh, vastly our investment in renewables. Great. Um, but there are, very, some, as I say, some very tough realities coming ahead. The energy price cap in the UK is rising. People are going to face... Some more very tough choices we talked about last week between putting uh, food on the table and, and heating their homes. I think the price cap from April 1st is going to go up by about £700. So, And people's uh, bills are going to go up roughly on average for prepayment customers at a commensurate rate. And then, of course, in the next period in October, we're looking at another hike. So the academics, I guess, were, were quite clear about the need for a, a Europe-wide solution here. Um, Northwest Europe, not necessarily European Union. They talk specifically about gas storage, um, perhaps working with our friends in Norway, uh, who, are, who are absolutely vital in terms of protecting our energy supply here in the UK. And, and I guess I guess, in terms of the near-term fixes that they were also suggesting, um, it, it really comes down to reducing our own demand for energy. Um, there is something called the, the Warm Homes Discount Policy. They're looking to extend that to um, people on universal credit, for example. But also generally, it's things such as learning how to heat our homes properly and cheaply, servicing our boilers in the summer when we don't need them. So they're operating at max efficiency when that hard winter comes along. And the consensus seems to be that we can't do anything about the price, but we can do something about our own domestic demand. And I think that's where the UK needs to, it would seem that's where the UK needs to concentrate its efforts, but we'll see what comes in the, in the next few months. They're going to have to act very rapidly.
Yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly the point. I th- and I think that it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? I think you know it's 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 something that we've kind of seen. You know, you kind of hear from sort of consultants in the energy industry to kind of who who provide advice to to oil companies. They always say, "Look, we can't control the oil price. What we can do is control our own costs." Mm. And I think that's that's kind of true on a sort of domestic uh, case as well, isn't it? I mean, I, I suppose that the, the challenge is, isn't it, that that in the UK we have something like the least insulated housing stock. I believe in Europe, something something along those lines, right? I mean, I think I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but it's kind of in the right ballpark. Sure. And and and, and, and you know, and it was was it was it last year we had the insulate Britain protests. Mm. Um, you know, and 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 obviously, no one likes uh, civil disobedience where it's kind of disrupting your commute. But at the same Evidently, time, yeah. <laughs> they had a really good point, right? Like we do need we do need better insulation. And to be to be fair, I think that there is there's you know there's there's an extent to which you know we as 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 homeowners can 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 take those steps and you know look at sort of you know double glazing and and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But also, there's an extent to which the government needs to step in, right? And to tackle um, essentially people living in poverty who yes. can't afford mm. to do those to, to to with those upfront costs who are really at the sharp end of heating bill rises and I don't I mean I I, I think you know it's, it's it's all very well for for, for Mr Johnson to to you know to talk about you know kind of a climate pass and and sort of trying to secure new supply but I I, I suspect that the government you know. There are tangible things that they can do to to help you know reduce energy demand, uh, and there are sort of longer term things, right? We can they can issue new licenses, but they could also bring in you know, new fuel efficiency plans, things like that, all of which would help. But I I, I mean I don't really see it kind of happening, and it's um, I, I I think it's it's that thing, isn't it? Like being in the kind of in the oil industry, you sort of see people, you know, oil kind of uh, executives you know complaining like you know this is a time to to increase the supply and, and people on the other side the sort of renewable side the green pieces say no this is the time when we need to transition to our own you know sort of new energy sources obviously both extremely sensible responses but they but again it's, it's that's a long-term problem right increasing production moving to a heat pump that's you know kind of a, a five-year ten-year plan as you're saying right we need we need we need sort of shorter term responses and, yeah. and it looks to be honest like it's just going to be a, a painful time right I, I don't see any change coming from the government in terms of helping us out in the near term right yeah the next six months what what what, what can we do you know in the face of people are already facing these these challenges we're, we're kind of i guess past the worst of winter but yeah 2022 uh the, the the winter ahead of us we're probably looking at as i say two price increases in terms of your bills hefty increases so um and and yeah, it's it's you know as as you kind of say uh, that there are some steps that maybe people on 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 middle incomes can can take to protect themselves a little bit from that. But uh, yeah, the people the people at the the sharp end, as you say, the people in poverty, this is going to be very very difficult. And if the government comes to a position where they're looking at, uh, I hate to say it, but you know, uh, deaths as a result of 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 what's going on, or people just you know freezing pensioners, for example, you know. They need to look at that very, very seriously and think, you know, what package of support can we put in place to help people at the very uh, sharp end? So I'd hope that energy supply paper that's coming out 
will do something to address that. Certainly, it would seem that the the argument that was being kind of hammered home at this panel was that, no, you need to look at something in the short term um, that's going to help those people because that is where this is going to all fall. Um, one of the things that came up and, and constantly comes up, uh, I feel like an Energy Voice columnist brings this up every single week, but it is an important point, is we don't have any storage in the UK. We've lost the last of our uh, gas storage facilities with the closure of the rough facility in 2017. We've definitely talked about that in the podcast before. Um, and one of the professors from Warwick University talked, again, about how we could use um, our, our gas terminals. Um, you know, th There is apparently capacity to incentivize them to hold some um, uh, measure of gas back during certain months for us to use that. Now, I don't know whether that would be anything like what we need, um, but it does seem that might be one potential um, way to get around it. And then the, the, the other interesting thing that came up with, with the, the new licenses, just because, uh, as you say, that's not a, that's not a short-term fix, but just because it's been apparently mooted by the government. Um, the, the OGA and, and Bayes are currently in a consultation about new climate checkpoints for new North Sea oil and gas fields. Uh, that process isn't complete, um, and I don't see how it would make any sense to announce a new licensing round when you're just going to have to change everything within within a very short space of time once this consultation is complete. So um, I, I, I wonder to the extent at which maybe people have gotten ahead of themselves on, on that particular one. It has been some time since we've had a licensing round, as I say, 2019 for the UK North Sea. Uh, obviously, we've had a whole host of issues since then. Um, but uh, but yeah, I can't I can't really see that happening ahead of uh, ahead of this climate uh, checkpoint process getting completed. But uh, but yeah, plenty to uh, just just one point. No, go on it. We've talked before about about a windfall tax, and I think I've I've seen a, a, some discussion about that kind of reemerging here, but also in the US, uh, and which I, which I think is a, is a, is a is a really interesting point, which you know obviously. Essentially, the industry does itself no good by having high prices, right? It, it it turns everyone against, you know, sort of oil fat cats and says, you know, how do how can we punish these people who are making money hand over fist when we can't afford to heat our houses? That's a problem here. That's a problem in the US. That's going to be a problem everywhere. And so I think that that it's 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 good to make sort of hay, I suppose, while the sun shines. But I think high prices do no one any favors. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think in that that's probably the right point for us to to leave it on for for this particular uh, episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you to Damon and to Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice. Leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to OutLoud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to OutLoud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.